fantasy animation podcast takes its listeners on a journey through the colliding and sometimes competing worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Each episode, we select an example of fantasy animation and consider the ways in which it functions to inspire and use our imaginations within the sphere of all things that are sculpted, composed, crafted and drawn. To help support the show, please subscribe via your podcast feed and give us a like and a quick review. It takes no more than a minute, but it really helps us to grow our audience. You can also find our archive of podcasts and our weekly blog at fantasy-animation.org. You'll find the latest reviews there, features, editorials, all written by academics, writers, historians and professional animators working within these overlapping media, mediums and genres. Failing all that, tell your friends, tell a friend about the show and the good work we do here. There's no substitution for good old-fashioned word of mouth, so thanks for downloading and I really hope you enjoy the show. Hi listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. The Force is with me and I am the Force. Right. Thanks. I think I've, I think I've already butchered that line. You but, have, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to, we're not going to cut a it je- out. A Jedi Knight I will not make. No. Um. Um, as you might have gathered in this episode, we are returning to the world of Star Wars, having done, I think, a couple of the sequel films in, in previous episodes. Um, but for this instalment, we're taking on Rogue One, one of the new anthology features released in 2016, directed by Gareth Edwards, who also has a excellent um, pedigree in animation as well Um, and an epic space opera it is that tells the story of the creation of the Death Star in what is an immediate prequel to Star Wars um, Episode 4 A New Hope now as you know or hopefully you will know my knowledge of Star Wars is patchy at best um, but I'm interested in the film's use of holograms and of course perhaps most notably its de-aging visual effects as it resurrects stars long since departed uh, and of course reconjures them in pristine computer graphics Alex tell me about the fantasy of this space I, I mean, look at you saying words like Death Star, like, you know yeah. what that is. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm interested, in, I'm always interested with franchises like this on kind of lore building, mythology building, uh, the relationship between kind of fantasies of old and fantasies of new. Nostalgia is a thing we've talked about in its relationship yep. to fantasy, and I think it links to some of the stuff you want to talk about. So, and I've always argued and will continue to argue that, that Star Wars is, is more of a fantasy than a sci-fi, and that I might, might use the iconography of science fiction but really at its heart it's a story of mysticism and magic and other worlds it, you know it, it replace a few um space slugs with some goblins and you're basically in a world of high fantasy here so i'm excited to kind of go back into that world and continue to pick it apart a little well in order to help us separate our gin ursos from our cassian andors um he says reading the uh, wikipedia <laughs> page um is dr jonathan root who's our guest for this episode and senior lecturer and program leader for film studies at the university of greenwich now jonathan has previously published research on home media formats and asian cinema distribution and he has co-edited a collection entitled New Blood, Framing 21st Century Horror um, in 2021, in addition to his monograph, which I think is now out, yes, yes um, on Zotoichi. 
uh, across film and TV. Uh, some of his research will also be appearing in the forthcoming edited collection, Women in East Asian Cinema, and he's contributed to podcasts. So he's a seasoned pro, um, contributed to the podcast series Beyond Japan and Second Features, as well as the 2022 Japan Touring Film Program. He has also brought donuts to this recording, <laughs> so can definitely come again. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and for the donuts. You're very welcome. <laughs> so our starter for 10 is um, is where Rogue One fits in your work, really. Perhaps not an obvious choice given your research and what I know about your research, um, but a film I think that I'm learning is a nice accompaniment to your um, monograph on Zatoichi, uh, The Blind Swordsman. So why Rogue One? Uh, mainly because um, it wasn't just me that noticed it. I'm, I'm happy to say that many critics noticed it at the time when Rogue One came out in 2016. The character in it, Chirrut Inwe, um, is basically Zatoichi in space, as the critics said. Okay. Um, and uh, I got, uh, this was a fun part of the book where I actually got to cite as many reviews as I could find where critics were making that comparison. Everyone from like Mark Kermode to I found, of all bizarrely, uh, of all places, the Yorkshire local news webpage. The okay. critic there seems cutting known. edge, yeah, 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 cutting edge. I know it was uh, from all all places uh, of the of the world almost because I yeah. swear there was an Australian review I cited too. Everyone seemed to recognise that he was Zatoichi in space, and um, there uh, at the time that the film came out, I was putting the idea of the book together. So um, since then, I gathered as much information as that, as well as on the other Zatoichi films and was using that to make a, a link to show the influence of this character, because that's the title of the book, The Paths of Zatoichi, The Global Influence of the Blind Swordsman. Excellent. Excellent example of that, of course, uh, that this character is homage in a Star Wars film. And it also shows uh, the continuing influence of East Asian popular culture in Star Wars, because that's always been an influence on the franchise. Sounds great. Yeah. I mean, so for, for the uninitiated, and I'm one of them. Yeah. What, you put what your is, hand up as well. I put my hand Nia. up. It's because I've just eaten a Krispy Kreme for the first time in my life, and I'm absolutely <laughs> buzzing off my tits um, <laughs> other other donut brands are available <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah fine um sure um yes so zatowichi what, what for those uninitiated what is it where does it come from and how can we spot one uh, as it? i as i found in the book um chris may be disappointed there's not as many animated versions of or homages of zatowichi there, there are a few I'm i could off. go into yeah yeah um, but the character could mainly, mainly perhaps more fall in line with the camp of fantasy um, because he is, as the name suggests, uh, with the subtitle of so many films, he is the blind swordsman. How the hell can you be blind and also fight brilliantly with a sword? That's basically the premise of these films and the initial short story that the character was based on. So if you want to get technical with your history, the character first appears on page in 1948. And then the idea of the character from that story is quite different from how he appeared on screen first appears on screen in 1962. Um, this is again why I'm very happy that you have me on the podcast today because we're in 2022, 60th anniversary of the, of the film franchise. Um, so yeah, the first film turns up in 1962 and that's where uh, also he's first played by Shintaro Katsu, who is primarily associated with this character um, because he ended up playing Zatoichi on screen for 25 films made from 1962 to 1973. So churning them out at a phenomenal rate. Yeah, yeah. So he made those films and then uh, the popularity of the screen character faded away um, a little bit by the early 1970s. Yep. Um, and then he switched to TV from 1974 to 79, played the character just for a small number of episodes, yet again, 100 uh, on screen. So the same actor is playing same this character across yes. different platforms. Okay, yeah, yeah, 25 films, 100 TV episodes, 
Um, then the character's kind of star status, if you will, I think that's the best way to put it, kind of fades away a bit. He decides to then try and bring back the character again in 1989 um, for like this big comeback movie. Even the character's a bit older and so is the actor. Doesn't work, sadly. Ends up being one of his last screen mm. roles because he passed away in 1997. Okay. Um, but that's who he's primarily been yeah. associated with in Japan. I'll just quickly mention in 2003, um, you'll know that one, Chris, yeah, the, yeah. the Kitano version, there was a Japanese remake of the character as well as in 2008 and 2010. And there's been some other international homages in the 20th century, but the most famous homages to come out in the 21st century are things like um, Daredevil, yeah, some yeah. other fan-made films that I've come across, which is a, actually a Star Wars fan-made film, really interesting, called Hoshino. And and then what we're getting you to today, of course, the uh, perhaps most famous Zatoichi homage in terms of big-budget spectacle is Star Wars Rogue One. So, first of all, that was amazing. Yeah. Second, <laughs> secondly, secondly, um, got me really excited well i know because i've read it but um presumably i think when this episode comes out there'll be a blog post written by jonathan about the satoichi character so what what struck me is yeah this character has this enduring quality this fictional character fictional character has this enduring quality and seems to be a character that crops up as you say in the in the um um book and, and the and the abridged blog uh, <laughs> that a character that crops up at various moments and i just wonder I think if I was in a in a seminar with with thinking about this, I'd be wondering why why is the character emerging at particular moments? Mm. Is there are are there market forces, um, kind of big contextual paradigms pressing down on Japan at the time, or or why is it that this character keeps coming back and and actually seems to have this afterlife mm. within popular and as as you said, contemporary U.S. television and a big franchise like Star Wars? Why is the character yeah. such an enduring? I guess, signpost maybe for a particular kind of um, myth. That's a really excellent question, one I've tried to answer with the book, and I'm not sure if I have. I mean, there are some parallels that could be made to really I iconic and long-running um, series and characters in Japan, like um, some parallels that I were making were, well, bizarrely enough, because that is like pure fantasy and sci-fi is Godzilla, yes, um, because yes. actually the number of characters have actually appeared in a similar number of films. Right, right. Um, but the story is that often Zatoichi tells himself is that he was sick of being looked down upon and downtrodden in society that at some point he's had somehow got some training for a sword and now he wanders around and hidden in his cane is a sword which he'll draw when trouble uh, comes looking for it yeah and so then he and then he joins the rebellion, joins the rebellion. <laughs> well yeah to on to that like so it sounds like there's elements of the character that shine with this i don't know very broad popular archetype that we could see in the western and we can see in the, in rogue one and we can see how the kind of lone masculine figure outside of society, yeah. a wanderer figure, and we can talk about sort of the, yeah. you know, the domestication of work versus um, uh, the sort of physicality of a character like that as kind of popular global reasons why that might happen. But does this character, in terms of Star Wars, because the character, so Chirrut, is it Im Imwe? In Chirrut Imwe, I'm gonna I call believe. Him Chirrut. Yeah. I'm going to call him Chirrut. Yeah. Uh, Chirrut is obviously a Jedi, uh, well, he's a... Force, yeah, force he's force-sensitive, <laughs> I force think is the, te uh, the technical term by, I can't remember if it's the scriptwriters who came up with that or the fans, right. but he's technically force-sensitive. He's not a Jedi. It's established in the plot of Rogue One. He's a guardian 
uh, well, they're called the Guardian of the Wills, and they're kind of monk-like figures right. that guard this temple, the Temple of Jeddah mm -hmm. in the film, um, which is a source of kyber crystals used to power the Jedi's lightsabers. Of course, when the Empire gets hold of them, that's another big plot line in the film. They're mm -hmm. using that to fuel the Death Star. Right, so, so the, and, and we can talk about sort of the relationship between the Force and kind of Eastern mysticism and, and various religions which are kind of cobbled together in that mythology. But is, let's start with, with the origin character. Has the original character got that kind of spiritual or or kind of fantastical um, supernatural purchase, mm. or is his skills more kind of just in you know is, is he more of a kind of super spy or a super samurai? Is he just very good at fighting, or is there any kind of mystical connection that helps explain? Mm. Um, his his abilities. That, that's a really good question. Again, I uh, wish there was a more succinct answer, but there's there, there's actually lots to unpack yeah, there. Yeah, sure. In in I would say in the majority of the films, because I did um, I haven't watched them again recently, but for the purposes of the book, I did go through every Zatoichi film and also the TV episodes. Um, which aren't available legitimately. You know, you have to find this, this stuff online. All the films pretty much are, um, but not on streaming services. They're still, um, they're very niche and still just available on DVD. Um, but going through all of them, there never seems to be a supernatural element to the character. You could argue this uh, in terms of how is a blind man able to um, swing a sword and yeah. kill so many bad guys in these films. It's up to you if you want to put that fantastical element in. Right. But there never seems to be any depiction of that. Um, at most you see Shintaro Katsu maybe wiggle his ears, showing that he's super sensitive right. to hearing. Okay. Um, that might be part of it. Sometimes his sense of smell comes up. That comes up actually particularly in one of the very few, because there's not many, uh, blind gunslinger films that have been inspired by Zatoichi. There were only two. One was 1971's Blind Man. The other was... I think it was 1992, I think, a HBO movie, really random, called Blind Justice. Mm. I mean, you mentioned that the... I mean, so so Rogue One, as I said, my, my Star Wars knowledge is patchy. And and I guess I'm sort of interested in, one, the East Asian influence that you mentioned right at the start, the East Asian influence on the on the Star Wars universe, but also, I don't know, the, this the place of this character who... I don't know whether it felt whether he felt out of place or in a, in a world where you have this kind of fantastic these fantastic range of characters, but also um, the way that the Star Wars films work with world building. The characters seemed very very different to some other Star Wars esque some mm. Star Wars type characters. Um, so I don't know. Who, I'll, well, yeah. I'll, I'll offer guest guest privilege first. Um, do you want to <laughs> see what you can tackle with that, and I'll uh, jump in with anything. Fantastic. What is Rogue One? Um, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I think. I, th I think this is right, Alex, if I remember all the feature films of Star Wars that have come out, because I know there's actually been a few other spin-off films sure. before we got to the latest anthology ones. But if I'm right, it might be the one of the first feature films without a Jedi uh, yeah, character. Yeah, would... although, although you could argue, I mean, there are Sith characters. Darth Vader is in there, of course. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. But the Jedi don't uh, initially how this film was marketed. I'm immediately thinking of the uh, the film isn't that focused on Jedi. And I remember Gareth Edwards saying one of their main ideas of the film was to emphasize the wars yeah. in the titles of Star Wars. So this this plays out very much like a war. And crucially, film. it's the first film outside the Skywalker side. Yeah, there's no so Skywalkers so, yeah, in it. Well, again, uh, unless you if we count Darth Vader, Darth but the Vader. protagonists aren't of yes aren't based on that story that's been told and retold and continued to be told. Um, so yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly right. So there's that, I think that's interesting in how I might approach this as a prequel, but you, yeah, I'd like, 
to pick up on the issues of East Asia, yeah. how it fits within the original Star Wars yeah. trilogy, but also what the original yeah. Star Wars was doing with kind of yeah. a broad philosophy. Well, I think um, Chiritimwe helps to illustrate that, mm -hmm. the character of Chiritimwe and his um, companion um, character as well, Baze Malbus, uh, played by Jiang Wen. These are two massive uh, Chinese, I think they're both from Hong Kong actually, um, actors. And uh, I think they're partially brought in for that reason to help play to the international audience with those massive characters. But also, particularly the character of Chirrut does help to illustrate the long association that the Star Wars franchise has had, or, or indeed the inspiration it's taken from East Asian popular culture. So I think we see a lot of that in Chirrut, which you can see in other characters in the Star Wars universe too, whether they're a Jedi or not. I think the whole notion of the Jedi is quite um, East Asian. And even though he's technically not a Jedi, uh, Chirrut in Rogue One helps to illustrate this. Um, in terms of, the, you know, the Jedi are often portrayed, particularly where we see a lot more of them in the prequels and some of the other films uh, as like these very um, almost religious order, or sometimes they're derogatively called as like, um, you know, religious wizards or sure. religious monks, that sort of character. They have these fantastic combat abilities, but they're also meant to be very in line with the Force and the, the lighter side of the Force, sure. that sort of thing, which Chirrut very much seems to be on, but he's also kind of a, a guardian for this power that he doesn't kind of have access to in terms of guarding the kyber crystals on Jeddah, which ultimately are stolen away from there um, by the Empire. And his character and how he's portrayed as well, it, it has a lot of linkage with Donnie Yen's career, as well as um, popular characters in East Asian culture, because basically he is portraying a monk there, if we you stick with that um, comparison. So if you stick with the monk comparison, yeah, uh, there's very popular characters in lots of Hong Kong action cinema, um, like Shaolin monks, yeah. who are again, trained in uh, very specific ways of combat, but also are following a strict religious code. So he could be read in that way. Yeah. And, and again, it kind of takes us back to all the East Asian influences that have inspired the Jedi. I mean, you just have to look at a lightsaber to realize it looks very similar to how samurai swords sure. are held. Um, George Lucas has mentioned in several interviews since the original Star Wars trilogy, you know, he was taking a lot of cues from Akira Kurosawa films where samurai were depicted. Um, lots of people have said, especially with Darth Vader's armor, especially from those first designs, looks very much like the old samurai warriors. Yeah. And there's been some other Japanese films, some of them are quite bizarre actually, um, since that have tried to, you know, retrofit the Star Wars iconography into the Japanese medieval um, setting to kind of emphasize that link, you know, lots of ideas from Star Wars came from our old Japanese films. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, also very famously, Lucas used Joseph Campbell's um, yeah. A Hero with a Thousand Faces um, to sort of base the, he, he says to kind of give him a template for the screenplay of the original Star Wars, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, which I think it's a, it's a controversial book and a controversial thing, because it, well, it's controversial for two reasons, I think. Artistically, it's controversial because it seems to suggest that Good stories are now can only be created if you follow a <laughs> rubric created by a kind of structuralist, formalist theorist of folklore, um, and mm. not necessarily a terrific one at that. If I'm to be controversial, uh, and then it's kind of it's socially and culturally controversial because you know by its very nature, it's trying to find these kind of overwhelming structures for all stories, and therefore doesn't really pay uh, um, specificity to the kind of cultural context in which stories take place right so there's i think the force is a kind of lovely manifestation of this in that 
no one really, everyone sort of thinks they understand the mythology of Star Wars, but actually if you listen to what is explicitly explained, it's very little yeah. kind of there to kind of get your head around it. But it's kind of a bit like Zen, but that's kind of yeah. doing a disservice to the kind and of then, nuances. And then when the prequels tried to explain midi-chlorians, that just seemed to annoy everyone, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so so, so it, it, I, almost like the way this franchise che- treats the Force, I find interesting as a genre theorist, because almost that's... Is it a fantasy or is it a sci-fi? Because if it's a fantasy, the impulse should be, you don't need to explain it. You've got yeah. a cool term. You can do some fun things with it. People are latching onto it. Let it be a mystery and that will be the fun of it. But sometimes the franchise feels the need to explain and that's where it goes down. Actually more sci- sci-fi. Anytime it tries to rationalize, yeah. actually fans tend to push against it, particularly when it comes to the force. So I think this is an interesting movie to think that through, because on the one hand, the origin story is doing a bit of rationalizing. We get yeah. um, an explanation as how the Death Star works, and it's drawing from the same stuff. That the Je- so we're having an explanation as to how the Jedi stuff works, yeah. how the me- mechanics of it all work. But we have these characters like um, like the Blind Warrior, I'm now going to call him because I cannot pronounce anything, <laughs> who offers a certain kind of mystical reading of the force at the same time. So yeah, I don't know, it, it, it's, to me, both the character and the film are, are playing with and not quite sure whether to yeah. explain the force or to leave it unexplained. Yeah, he does, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's interesting in that regard because he does fall into getting into some of the material that I talk about in the blog, because um, it wasn't my idea, but uh, the, the research that I referenced made me realize that there's in, this interesting trope with depictions of blind people, sometimes in, in action, science fiction or fantasy films. Um, they can fall into the stereotype of wise old sage as yep. well as being blind. And Chirrut could come across that way. And this kind of falls into, I think, what Alex has just said in, in terms of, you know, the franchise um, tries to leave some of this loose explanation around the force and someone that understands it like Chirrut uh, falls into this stereotype character of wide old sage. Uh, maybe that helps to identify, you know, some of that tropes that Star Wars falls into, whether the characters aren't blind or not. There's actually quite a few wise old sages who think they're yeah. explaining the force <clears throat> in a useful way, but if you pay attention to, as I say, to a lot of detail, you might end up more confused yeah. and clarified. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing because... Yeah, when when the director and the writers come out and say this is not going to be a film which has Jedi's in it, it's not going to be a film about the Force. This is about the war, and this mm. is going to be about the battle. Almost what they're saying is this is going to be, this isn't going to be a, a fantasy. This is going to be a kind of much more science, you know, sort of like in the in the mode of say Dune or something like that, right? Mm. A sort of maybe a, a traditional space opera or something like that. All that has fantastical elements often, but yeah, yeah a, a more grounded, uh, rationalistic worldview in the science uh, fiction universe and yet when the film comes out actually there's a lot of force going on in it there's a lot of stuff and that and some of the most well the scenes that they clearly want to be the most spectacular involve either um you know this blind warrior kind of you know either you know engaging with the force and using it in its own sort of you know trying to embody it whilst also being distanced from it which i think is an interesting way of doing it or we get the kind of spectacular Darth Vader yes. uh, reveals and things where we get the force being used in its kind yeah. of you know op- mm. operatically which is evil a, manner yeah which is a great uh, climax to the film I do really like the film but I'm also sure that they put it in there I can understand that they put it in there just to you know satisfy the fans I think fans are wanting to be seeing that for years you know mm. Darth Vader just take on a, a room full of bad guys like that yeah. Yeah. well not not bad guys room full of good guys yeah, sorry yeah, a room full of people <laughs> yeah, so yeah. What, what I suppose Star Wars is in a sticky situation because it's the world of Star Wars has been parodied and satirised to, to, to an extent where when I was watching Rogue One I was thinking about the sort of family guy 
Sky, yeah, Blue Harvest. It's a trap, that kind of stuff. And so it's difficult, actually. And we were talking before we, we started about all these different transmedia franchises, but, but the way in which all these transmedia products where you have the Star Wars universe that is now spilling out into animated series, you know, Star Wars, The Clone Wars, um, onto to streaming platforms and all these supporting series. So there's a lot of work that goes into fleshing out the world of Star Wars and introducing a, a really incredible range of characters with fabulous names that are very difficult to remember, pronounce and spell, um, but would make great Scrabble scores. <laughs> so what do you think Rogue One is is trying to do? It's trying to tell a story before we get to A New Hope. But in terms of what it's what it's doing, is it is it fleshing out the world and introducing new characters and creating new relationships? I mean, I'm sort of, I, and I don't know because I'm not as well-versed in Star Wars as you, but I just wondered if you're going to try and pitch a film like Rogue One. Solo I can understand because it's about the origin story yeah. of a of your protagonist, let's say. But Rogue One, what I liked actually about Rogue One is it didn't feel like, certainly for the first hour and 15, didn't feel like it had a protagonist. Yeah. But it was, there was a lot of different characters and I was trying to keep my head, um, kind of get my head around all the different relationships and, yeah. and that sort of stuff. So Rogue One seems to be less enthralled to let's tell the origin story of our, our hero that would go on to be um, I nearly said Napoleon solo, but I meant Han solo. Um, <laughs> what is Rogue One doing in that sense? What's, what's yeah. the purpose of it within the Star Wars universe? I, I hate to gossip because well, oh, I don't hate do to gossip. You? I love it. Um, obviously, this film has had quite publicised um, behind-the-scenes shenanigans in terms. Yeah, of there was a lot of that. I can't help right? feel that the film that it once was was uh, an attempt to kind of do what the Mandalorian does with season one, which is can you tell a story? With the Star Wars brand, with the in a Star Wars universe that is actually just on its own, unique mm. characters, mm -hmm. different tone, different style, different right. genre, mm. and I wonder whether the original version of this film, which is still sort of there in its spine, was a kind of band of brothers. First yeah. half, let's get the team together. Second half, let's do the mission. Kind of where eagles dare. Yeah. Um, that kind of movie that didn't pay quite so much homage to the lore of, of how what this all sets up, other than the kind of tangential, it's based on a line from the original yeah. um, movie. And, and slowly, again, a bit like Mandalorian, what seems to have happened is the kind of unbearable expectation of fandom has turned it into a film that is much more, feels much more in need to sort of be about how Star Wars became Star Wars than I think perhaps it, it could have been. I, I, I'm less interested in the dark, as much as it is kind of cool, the Darth Vader bits and the time to get into CGI, uh, bringing people back from yeah. the dead and all yeah, that we'll kind of stuff, yeah. then I am learning about the characters of the yeah. Rogue One Squadron, who I feel yeah. are actually, I would like more time yes. with them yeah. and less explosions, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, which is also interesting to know. Um, you know, I'm not keeping up with every bit of news about the Star Wars universe, though I have watched this since a very young age, as, yeah. I'm, uh, as yeah, I think yeah, Alex yeah. mentioned as well. Um, they um, Perhaps they, Disney have listened to some fan reaction of that, because we are going to get a Cassian Andor series, yes. which is going to be a prequel to Rogue One, right. prequel series to Rogue One. Because uh, I think, yeah, thinking back on this film, that's, that's what I always reminded of as well. And it was, again, talked a lot with the reception of the film. It had this um, uh, Where Eagles Dare tone, 
Stone or a Dirty Dozen was being mm -hmm. used as a comparison a lot. Oh. Um, and in a lot of the plot lines, especially from Andor's character, we get the impression that the Rebellion has had to do some dirty things to stay on the you know right side of the Empire and, yeah. and their machinations against them. Yes. Um, the, uh, the, for, for like the it almost feels the first time, apart from when we see Anakin turn to Darth Vader, maybe in Episode Three, for the first time we we're starting to get a, a, a depiction of the shades of grey of war, mm -hmm. especially through, and again, this got a lot of criticism at the time, kind of the extremist factions that there seemed to be in the Rebellion yep. um, with Forrest Whitaker's character. Saw, Gu Saw Guerrera, Gu Guerrera. That's it, yeah. So I thought I'd jump in because that's the only time on the podcast I'll ever get to do that. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> at the start of Rogue One, um, Cassian Andor kills kills a character. Yeah, kills another character. Kills yeah. another character. And I thought, hang on a minute, I'm uh, so I... I don't and know. The good I, guys are not supposed to do. Yeah, that. there were good guys that are not supposed to do that. And the reason I remember it is because I really like the actor Daniel Mays, who he kills in the thing. And yeah. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Daniel Mays is in the film, and also he's just been killed by this guy who. Sure. And I and I did wonder whether the character, given that he's played by um, Diego Luna, was gonna. We were gonna do that with othering. We were gonna make the villain the mm -hmm. other, and the the mm -hmm. hero or the heroine, the white woman played by um, Felicity Jones. So I was just. I, I wasn't sure what the film was setting up. Yeah. The, the shades of grey seemed to make more sense with regards to having to do dirty things, yeah. as you yeah. said. Um, there are all these intriguing bits of it. Like, as yeah. I say, I want to yes, know agreed. more about Sorgara. I want to know more about this kind of the extremist faction that you can't align yourself with because they have too far. I want to, yeah. and, and I want to, when they're on that kind of in Jeddah, where we look, where we essentially meet the bands, don't we? It's, it's yeah. the first two hours of Seven Samurai, isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. Of, um... Or um, or uh, I'm reminded of there were some. I can't remember if there was reviews at the time or how the film has been uh, re revisited and re. Uh, criticized since the first Star Wars film was sometimes paralleled with um, uh, you know the fights in Vietnam or guerrilla warfare okay, yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of sometimes the rebellion was read as like the Viet Cong acting against the imperialist army mm -hmm. um, that was invading them or that sort of allegory mm -hmm. and I think we get a lot of that in Star Wars Rogue One especially where it's set Jeddah it does sound like somewhere in the Middle East where there is a guerrilla warfare force yeah. fighting against a, uh, an outside invader. I mean, they talk at the Holy City <laughs> Yeah, lot, yeah, they, they so do call it a, the know, Holy City. Know, yeah. So there's a whole kind of way of reading it as kind of Israel-Palestine yeah, and, and exactly. you, know, you know dominating forces coming onto this place. You know, we've got the Empire literally looming above it in its big uh, Star, Star Destroyer, Destroyer yeah. versus you know the Rebellion are trying to use it for their own devices. Yeah, so I think there's some really interesting things in the movie. I think it's a better movie to think about than it is a, to watch because I do think that also <laughs> it just falls into a bit too much action set piece mentality and a bit too yeah. much yeah I, I think the problem is is that if you're a Star Wars fan that grew up with Star Wars what you really really want to do in your heart of hearts is not have seen Star Wars and rewatch it again for the first time and to satisfy yeah. that impossible demand you have to somehow give people no, you know, a new Star Wars mm. that doesn't do any damage to the relationship they have with the old mm. text. It can't explain mm. anything, add anything, because that's all choices and decisions. Yeah. It can't augment or change or extend. And yet it somehow has to be new at the same time and not just be 
you know, Force Awakens. Yeah, I completely take your point that they're maybe trying to do a bit too much of this with Rogue One. Maybe it's just me and my personal opinion. I do still really like Rogue yeah. One a lot, but I'm going to be biased because there's the Zatoichi character yeah. in yeah. it. Um, but I, I also take on your point. They're trying to satisfy, you know, those diehard Star Wars fans at the same time because not only are they digital de-aging people and, and resurrecting them from the dead, they are actually replaying some moments from A New Hope. I don't know if you um, saw that mm. when with the pilots, some of the pilots, they're using those pilots faces from their attack on the Death Star at the end of the 77 film. So, I, I'm yeah. nodding, listeners. We'll come on to the character. We've sort of touched on how he's originated, but I think he is the most interesting character in the film, so I definitely want to revisit that. We'd better talk about uh, CGI and bringing people back from the dead and de-aging because yeah. uh, this is come on Chris this is this is your baby so, well, I, uh, well actually there are two, I suppose there are before I say that I, I having done a bit of research into into George Lucas and the relationship between Lucasfilm the com the emergent computer graphics group that would then become Pixar um, because Lucasfilm had a relationship to to let's say practical miniature effects and models and things like this its newly incumbent CG arm was often described as Lucasfilm's rebel unit. It was the thing that... that, that oh, really? Yeah, it's, it was used as a kind of analogy to think about, we, were, we have this tradition in practical effects, and now we've got these, this, rebe this digital rebellion that are doing things slightly differently and, and ultimately would be bought by Steve Jobs and become Pixar. And I'm, I'm sort of more interested in the Lucas era phase of... of, of Pixar, let's say, or the, the relationship that Lucasfilm has with the computer graphics group and the hiring of a bunch of people from the University of Utah that would then become and be spun out as Pixar. So there is something interesting about the idea of, of, of the digital being a rebellious force within the world of Star Wars right. and within the world of production, that these were young animators, a lot of practical animators, practical effects artists were of a certain age. They were literally panding over the reins to this young... Yeah, so they were sort of... Spinned it off and, and kicked out almost of the... Yeah, the because practical effects would be a thing of the past. Let's hand the baton to digital effects. Right. This this rebel group of young, um, fresh out of okay. college people. Anyway, so there's that interesting yeah, 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 yeah. kind of... The idea of the, the rebel unit has been used sort of symbolically. And the relationship it. between digital technology and the whole franchise is very interesting. Well, in and certainly... Fan fans often you know do that thing where they say, oh, we don't want any CGI, and actually there's loads of CGI in all of them, and there always has been. Yeah, <laughs> I think that, I think there's a relationship between the first... The, the Phantom Menace, where I know the pod race, the crowds were built through um, cotton buds that were dipped in different colored paints, and okay. that made the crowd. Two, three, four years later, Attack of the Clones, which is often been described as just a big toy advert right. done with, that was the film where where um, Ewan McGregor came out and said he was doing a lot of his dialogue to a tennis ball on a stick. Sure. The CG character Jar Jar Binks, I think is also mm. symbolic of the franchise's relate thorny, let's use it again, oil and water relationship to, to CGI. But here we get CGI being used to bring back the spirit, almost literally, mm. of, yes. of, of the old trilogy. So, so yes, uh, so I'm interested in, in as, you, as you well, and a beautifully set up, Alex, thank you, um, digital de-aging and specifically digital de-aging technologies within franchise features because often de-aging is used as kind of the connective digital tissue let's say that connects up franchise features in some cases made 40 years apart in the in the mm. instance of um so so a lot of films that you get digital de-aging are in things where even the titles of the films speak to temporality yeah. so and your, your end games your x-men origins your uh, Terminator Dark Fate a lot of it is Tron about Legacy Tron I remember Legacy. as well yeah. Rogue One is a good example because it kind of does a couple of things I think on the one hand it, raises, it brings back from the dead um, 
which is not strictly which is not strictly de-aging. So the the distinction is between Peter Cushing and at that time Carrie Fisher, because sure. at that time sure. Carrie Fisher was yeah. was um, with us, and yeah. what we were seeing was a. Well, this was released between the two. Uh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was released before this Last before, Jedi. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, and I so, think yeah. I, I think it was just as Last Jedi was coming out, she passed yeah, away. Absolutely. I but yeah. then, That's right. yeah. but I think the backlash against it perhaps precipitated the fact that in the third of the new ones, it was not digital kind of reconstruction. It was archived footage from the previous. Yeah. So when we see Carrie Fisher aged as she yeah. is or she was then embracing Daisy Ridley yeah. that's actually the, footage cut out they haven't chosen to recon, reconstruct it through technology because I think of the backlash towards some of this technology there's also there is also I mean whether there, it should be a difference is one thing but there is also a kind of effective difference yes. it feels less murky to do it to P Peter Cushing who is sadly long gone yeah. uh, and a recently deceased yes. member of the, of the cast yeah. yeah so you have at the end of the film, you have the simulation of the younger Carrie Fisher, um, whose digital face was, and I wrote down the name of the actress, Ingvild um, Dela, who performed the scene with kind of facial markers on her on her face, and the digital skin was was attached to to the final shot. Is, so that's interesting because when I know you've written on this, because unfortunately you talk to me outside of this podcast and I have to listen to you sometimes. <laughs> but uh, then why don't you return my calls? Next question. <laughs> um, when let's have this fight off air. Um, yeah. When uh, you've talked about yes. examples of males de-aging, yes, it's the male performer, yes, that comes on set and puts the digital dots on his face. Samuel yeah, L. Jackson, yeah. uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Right, all right. So, so it begs the question: Why didn't Carrie Fisher do it? And uh, and what, what mm. is that because she's a woman, or is that because she didn't want to do it? Or I uh, I, I don't know. Of course, yes. One of the interesting almost feels like recasting her, right? <laughs> you know, you'd get you get the you get the you get the guy to put on a baseball cap in the sort of eighties when they're playing a teenage version of themselves because men can sort of be any age and women have to be all 20. Yes, um. of, of course, there is a, a heavily gendered dimension to digital de-aging and it's largely a technology that's used in service of actually youthening a particular kind of 1980s masculinity, strangely. So um, there are de-aged examples um, from the film Grudge Match of Stallone, of De Niro, um, God is a Galaxy Volume 2's Kurt Russell, yeah. the Terminator films is Arnold Schwarzenegger. So the, the, the use Danny of... Junior, Robert, um, but a particular kind, yeah. uh, Jeff Bridges, a particular kind of 19. Is masculinity um, that is being de-aged. It's often not a technology afforded to women. There are a couple of examples that kind of prove the rule, really. Um, so Michelle Pfeiffer at the beginning of the second Ant-Man and um, Sean Young in the new Blade Runner, but that's kind of well, just... there's been a recent one as well. Have you seen The Adam Project? Yes, 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 yeah, yes. a digital... Catherine Keener. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so there are, Sean Young wasn't, in, I, from what I understand, everyone wasn't involved in Blade Runner. No, Blade she wasn't Run. involved in Blade Runner. No, so that's two examples now of two yeah. actresses not being used. So yeah. in um, in the case of, I mean, it's interesting in the case of Blade Runner because that's sort of justified by the fact the character is already artificial because of being a replicant. However, you're right that Carrie Fisher was not and Sean Young was not. I don't know whether they have to kind of license their image. I'm sure they do. It's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost like it's easier to get another young woman and just then stick get, a face on it. And, yeah. and put Carrie Fisher's face on it, yeah. then get Carrie Fisher's face and de-age it, because how on earth could you do that? You know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting why they didn't do that, because they did bring back, of course, James L. Jones to do the voice of Vader sure. in, Star, in, yeah. in Rogue One. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. so I mean, the audio component to this is, is also an interesting issue, because you often have the de-aged image 
but you have the aged voice. Mm. So actually, you have Kurt Russell speaking, but you have... Yeah, okay. I mean, it's an interesting one because you, in, in the case of often male digital de-aging, you have the scene performed twice, once by the body double and then once by the age star, and then the two mm. sequences are kind of pushed, pushed together. But at least there seems to be a bit of agency afforded to the male star in a way that there isn't in the case of Carrie Fisher. I would say that um, in, in order to pursue authenticity, and the Star Wars um, products have done this a couple of times, they always maintain that authentic audio is used. So you have Carrie Fisher's audio files, let's say. Yeah, it's one in word in Rogue One, isn't it? It's yeah, just yeah. the one word, hope. hope. And then yeah, we'll come to that in a second. And then you have... Um, uh, Mark Hamill, I think for a couple of episodes of, of either Mandalorian or Boba Fett, you have yeah. Yeah. Um, his speech was actually put through a sound synthesizer to make it younger. Mm -hmm. So they're even using the authentic voice as part of a. Yeah. And I and I don't and I do wonder. I mean, digital de aging is is you have a couple of examples prior to. 2016, of course you do, but 2016 is also the same year as um, Captain America's Civil War, which was the big, we're now going to have a sequence yeah. which is having, which is re which Robert Downey Jr. describes as Tony Stark in the film as retro-framing the future, which is a title of an upcoming article, just put that, slip that in there. Um, but it's a, it, that is a sequence where digital de-aging is, is actually the sequence is about de-aging properly, like it's kind of presenting it front and centre. Mm -hmm. But the agency of, of of kind of female performers within this, I think, is really kind of problematic because yeah. almost like not only a not only a male stars like your Clint East. Basically, if you're not Judy Dench, Meryl Streep, or Helen Mirren, you aren't a, a woman of making a movie. Basically, you have to they're the, they're the legitimate old older females, and you can't even be in movies where you're in them. Yeah, so so <laughs> not only are not only can Clint Eastwood still be making films and directing films in his nineties, basically. Um, so not only are male performers and male stars allowed to grow old, they're also afforded de aging technologies more so than their female counterparts. Um, whereas what Hollywood will just do is just not cast an older character above, or an, uh, an older female above a certain age and just cast Jennifer Lawrence instead. The sequence or the sequences with Peter Cushing that combines de-aging with another kind of body that's kind of common to contemporary Hollywood, um, what Lisa Bode has termed posthumous performance. Yeah. Something that she traces back from Gene Kelly dancing in the golf adverts, television advert, break dancing in the rain, um, to Gladiator, Oliver Reed, that kind of posthumous Oh, and you've just reminded me, there was a, I think it was a Galaxy advert where they brought back Audrey Hepburn. Yes, Audrey yeah. Hepburn. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They are the um, Albert Einstein adverts that are currently on television where he's like sitting in the bath. These sort of yeah, playful, bringing digital reconstructions of, of, of performers. Um, so Lisa Bow calls this posthumous performance where basically computer graphics reanimate and, and kind of reconjure deceased stars as live performing bodies after. Yeah, um, and a, a lot of stuff I remember around around Rogue One was um, from the Peter Cushing estate going, no, they're fine with it, it's fine. He was fine with it, and it's like, well, it's still a bit kind of dodgy to see mm. the actor Guy Henry yeah. have his face, um, it, you know, stuck Peter Cushing's face on it. Yeah. So there's that, so there's kind of, the film does two kinds of things. It does it does the strict de-aging, although that actually has now become posthumous in the case of Carrie Fisher, mm. um, and then at the time, the posthumous performances of, of Peter Cushing that were kind of composed by composited footage of, of photographs and film footage and stuck on an actor's face, who was allowed to speak as himself as well. He was, so yeah. That's really he's, interesting he's, guy yeah, he did speak about, um, I was at the 
May 2017 MCM Comic Con, because that was when I just started working at Greenwich. So that month when I started, I was like, oh, this is happening across the road. I'm going to go. And Guy Henry did did a panel as well, talking about the, funnily enough, the digital de-aging process and, you know, trying to do this voice that he said he was trying to respect Peter Cushing, not try to do so much of an impression that does sound that way. And um, it's also interesting listening to what you've just been saying. Uh, Essentially, this process is taking a digital mock-up of... Um, Peter Cushing's face and putting it on Guy Henry you kind of see the bones of that the evidence of it of interpreting it that way Mm. in the extras on Rogue One as well as the process that he talks about you know acting with this machinery on his face I think there's an I can't remember exactly there is another DH version of uh, Carrie Fisher that appears in one of the in Rise of uh, Rise of Skywalker that that was that was Carrie Fisher's daughter Billy Lord so that yeah. was so so when Carrie Fisher was alive they didn't mm. get her involved and then once she died they got her daughter to come in and perform and she was mother. already acting in the two earlier yeah. newer yeah, Star Wars films yeah. so she is she performs as her mother in there so anyway so there's lots of interesting stuff around de-aging and, and this was sort of a moment I think for, for digital de-aging and now it's really popular of course you mentioned the one word that Carrie Fisher, well, not Carrie Fisher, says in this movie, hope. which is hope. And I yes. just want to very briefly talk about that. And that might be because I've spent the last year reading works of St. Augustine uh, and I'm kind of getting very interested in ideas of oh, Christian God, me hope. Too. No. Uh, hope keeps being mentioned in this movie as this like thematic, right? That, that, that um, a rebellion is built on hope. They say that a couple of times. It's a kind of key thing. And it just made me think about... Um, the ways in which, and we've sort of touched on this already, the, the Jedi mythology religion is is attempted to ex- be explained in this movie. And I think the way it tries to do it, treading that line we've already set up, is to not necessarily explain the force, but give a bit more background to the kind of infrastructure and, yeah, the, the, yeah, the religious infrastructure that is being a Jedi, or, or the religion of the Jedi in, yeah. in, in this world. Yeah. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a bit in uh, The Last Jedi where... Yeah, uh, uh, Luke reveals the kind of Jedi Jedi Temple or the, the yeah. final and uh, the, the books yeah, of the, the books Jedi, of the Jedi right? Right? that's it yeah. so, so I'm interested in that because actually as much as we've talked about this being indebted to kind of a loose collection of East Asian sort of religious structures it would seem to me that actually the more Jedi religion is explained mm. the more the structures are explained we're actually going down quite a sort of Judeo-Christian Islamic kind of route in that we mm. get biblical Biblical texts, we get um, things that look not unlike mosques and, and synagogues. Yep. Um, and we get this kind of recurrent theme of hope powering the movie, which is, you know, a very you know fundamental kind of Christian um, virtue. Um, the only way it can try to conceptualize what being a Jedi or, or following the Jedi religion might look like is to actually take it down a much more kind of institutional Western framework yeah. that's yeah, struck anyone at all is that our tension with some of the other kind of nods to eastern cultures we could yeah. be interpreted yeah. that way with like kind of east asian overtones yeah. i would say well it, historically and there is still to this day there are uh, arms of christianity and other religions in east yeah. asian countries well, yeah, of course we'll uh, these things out. have always been mashed up and i think if you look on a genre perspective these things have always been mashed up in star wars because star wars has always been talked about as having these east asian influences most specifically i didn't mention the film by name earlier but 
you, Alex probably knows the Hidden Fortress. Oh yes, have, yes. You, uh, have you seen the Hidden Fortress? I have yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's startling watching the beginning of that film. You know, the the medieval characters that turn up are exactly like the characters of R two D two and C three PO. You can quite clearly see where where George Lucas gets some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. But Star Wars has also been described um, quite often as a space western. So sure. it's yes. often mashed up these East Asian ideals with these Western ideals. So it would make sense, you know. Uh, I guess if they're mashing these things together, if they're touching on wider yeah, religious themes, there'll be elements of East Asian mysticism and religion, and why not also a Christian yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, symbology? Yeah. So is there not? I mean, I'm just writing this down. Jedi, Judeo, Jedi. Yeah, there could be a link. So here. there's a because yeah. there's a lot of I, I'm doing some frantic googling about. I'm, the I'm really annoyed I didn't see that earlier in terms of Jedi Gekin yeah, linking yeah. that to Jedi. Um, and of course, kind of, of course, Lucas did that. Of course, he did. Yeah, <laughs> so, but I was just thinking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I think when we've taught um, the Jedi Gekin, we've taught humanity and paper balloons. I remember it well. Um, yeah, that uh, just just made me think the the Jedi Geki versus the Jedi, and then also these sorts of religious. I just I don't know. There's just a nice sort of. Me of, um, I won't say who, but another critic I heard of on another podcast was really annoyed when someone else had to point out to them in the Northman that's out at the moment. Oh, Amleth is a is an anagram of Hamlet. Oh, <laughs> look at that! There was something yeah. that, that somebody that we were talking about earlier with regards to whether or not the the film is at its best when it's not trying mm. to have those threads to later Star Wars films. And, and I think the point about Darth Vader is is right. I think the the Carrie Fisher sort of quote unquote cameo does work, but maybe that's just because it's the last shot of the the film. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting ending to kind of end yeah. with our char characters and then have another yeah. kind of five minutes. And it's yeah, I, I, I quite think, like that. It's I think the um, Darth Vader chasing down the rebel soldiers onto the ship mm. does work. Yeah. I'm not so sure about the other scene where he turns up. I'm not quite sure why that is well, so when necessary he uses, when he crushes yeah when he crushes the uh, ben, director ben krennic yeah, yeah, yeah having the time yeah. of his life yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, who also features in captain marvel right yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes. so no i just i just thought uh, that that was something that cropped up earlier whether the film is at its best when it's sort of not trying to uh, whether and whether those links to later star wars films are there for the for the fans i mean it's very difficult when talking about star wars films because of the power that the fans have but also mm. to try and give over too much power to the fans in terms of the shape of these things but it seems like the film is is really great for the first yeah hour and 10 15 minutes where it's giving us all these different and actually when when Darth Vader does appear which is around yeah it's soon around after, the midpoint I yeah, think. yeah soon after the hour mark it sort of tries to do some I don't know. Tries to do some connectivity that perhaps yeah. doesn't quite, kind of doesn't yeah. quite pay off. I don't know. I don't I, know. I actually think the second half is the stronger half. Oh. You know, I, just, I just wish I had more investment in the yes. characters to to, mm. to really be affected mm. by what happens. Because actually, I find I actually find Jin Erso not a particularly interesting character. I think there's probably there's there's the grounds for her to be interested. She's not given enough space and time to sort of breathe on yeah. the screen to. Kind of, and I feel that with a lot of the characters, I need another two or three scenes of them just being mm. for a bit rather than running away from yeah. her. More Mads Mikkelsen. But that's more true. Mads yeah. Mikkelsen. That's true of so most much. films. I, I, of course, uh, I'm going to say I'd love to see more Chirrut and, sure. ba yeah, and yeah, Baze yeah. as well, because yeah. I think that dynamic duo of you know Baze relying on his massive machine gun, or blaster, I should say. Oh, it's basically a machine gun, though. Um, uh, 
paired up with, you know, um, Chiri Timwe's martial arts skills. I'd I'd love to see that, but I'm sure Donnie Yen and Jing Jing Wen are maybe too busy for that. We are going to get more Cassian Andor. Yeah, Yeah. so that that would be interesting to see, absolutely. And more, actually, more Riz Ahmed would be be good for me. Uh, Again, again, true of most films. True of most films, so. And more Forrest Whitaker. Uh, Not true of most films. No. Um, So there are some some seeds in the film that perhaps need a little watering, but could... Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I liked it. I haven't seen, I haven't seen Solo, but it seems like, I don't know. There's a move by the the, the Star Wars universe. I don't know whether this is kind of true in in kind of industry terms, but a move towards more long form television programs. It seems to be that way. Space where these kinds of stories can unfold. I I wanted to go back to one point that you mentioned earlier. Really interesting. It reminded me of the roots of ILM. Oh, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. uh, uh, Just before going into the pixel era. Mm -hmm. That's interesting talking about the origins of Rogue One because, again, he's interviewed on the Blu-ray extras and I think this is probably what in the the material that's on Disney Plus now. The original story, one of the original people credited with the story of Rogue One, there's different script writers that fleshed out into the screenplay. But one of the original story credits is John Knoll, who is uh, American visual effects supervisor and chief creative officer apparently at Industrial Light and Magic. So the original kernel of the story came from one of the Industrial Light and Magic special effects artists. Right, right. And then they developed this, you know, into the more fully fleshed out script in the film. Yeah, because it's funny, because Lucasfilm, there's a a lot of stuff around, you know, what would happen if George Lucas had never sold off Pixar and it, you know, he kept hold of that kind of group of the the computer graphics um, uh, lab, as it was the CGM. And uh, this comes from the fact that it took Lucasfilm a long time. Lucasfilm created a Lucasfilm animation division um, to make computer animation, in, and what they've tended to do is make basically Star Wars, they make Clone Wars, television. Yeah. They've, they've was leaned. This, was this before LucasArts as well? They're quite prominent video game arm. Ah, uh, so Lucas time. Lucasfilm Animation, I think, is two thousand and eleven. That's when it was. Oh right, when okay. When it's formed, because prior to then it had been a studio for hire, helping out doing kind of stuff for Rango, another film yeah. we've done on the, the podcast. Um, so Lucasfilm's relationship to computer animation is an interesting one. One, because they're, they're right at the start. Two, because they sold Pixar, um, and kind of Lucas hands things over to Steve Jobs. And then three, Lucasfilm finally moves into computer animation production, but makes the Clone Wars series and sort mm-hmm. of does, some other, does yeah. some other stuff. But they've tended to lean more to, I mean, they, the, the Star Wars franchise has obviously been very lucrative yeah. for Lucasfilm. So oh, yeah, they yeah. keep within yeah. that world Quite, yeah, quite but I remember before the Disney takeover, there were lots of spin-offs and like unofficial or uh, um, like storylines. Alex might know a bit about this. There was lots of spin-off um, book series, like unofficial canon yeah, no, stories. This I, do, I know nothing yeah. about. Quite I, 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 I haven't read or <laughs> yeah, played a lot of these, but there was a lot of this um, going on. And I also remember, you know, that LucasArts was quite prominent for making a lot of Star Wars games before, again, the Disney takeover. And there was a massive thing um, when the Disney takeover yeah, yeah. happened about which of those things were canon and not exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Some of them, which they seem to go back to with characters that they're reintroducing into The Mandalorian, yeah. which is interesting. And I also remember that LucasArts was quite prominent for other video games it made. I'm trying to rack my brain for the titles now because I didn't actually play a lot of them, but I'm wondering how much of that fed into um, then the LucasArts animation and later animation. Um, you, you may be yeah. aware of some of this. People like Richard McCulloch yeah, might also yeah. be more aware of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I think I, I remember something in Variety, which was the image of George Lucas basically signing off and signing away and giving giving Disney access to characters, but also kind of the the, the effects units and, and the kind yeah. of production side of things. But um, 
Uh, we haven't quite of Death Star's plans by now, so we better um, wrap we, up. We haven't quite we, um, said hope yet. No, um, no, no, no. So yes. I'll, I'll come back another day to talk about Daredevil if you want to make a uh, Marvel yeah. reference <laughs> to Zatoichi. Sounds, sounds good. <laughs> uh, sounds good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Before you go though, for this time, Jonathan, uh, yeah. tell us just a little bit about where we can find your book and how we can access it. Uh, and something about an anniversary and a, and a, yes. and a, and a yes. code. Tell us all about yes. plug away. There is a discount code. I will email that to you afterwards. I might have yeah, done we'll that already. Um, we'll stick it in the show yes, there is, yes. A, there is a discount code. Hopefully, uh, listeners uh, are hearing this soon in the year 2022, because that's yes. the only year the discount code is valid for, because yes. this year is the 60th anniversary of the Zatoichi franchise. We wouldn't dare not have this episode. <laughs> no, sure, <laughs> but, but listeners may dare listen to it yeah. so yes, they will listen. Yes. Um, so if you're listening to this after 2022, that discount code is no longer valid, but that will be on the Fantasy yeah, Animation yeah. Um, website. Um, you can find other information about my publications. Well, Chris did a great job of summarizing that earlier from my <laughs> uh, Greenwich um, profile page. Yeah, yeah, we'll link to that too. Um, yep. Yeah, oh, and also this should be recorded after it goes out. So you should be able to watch that on YouTube after the fact on the 5th of May, 2022. Um, I'm doing an online book launch. So uh, yes, that'll be yes. watchable on YouTube after that, the, mainly focusing on the Zatoichi character. I don't think we'll be talking about it as Rogue One as much on that online. We've done it here. Launch. We've yes. done it here. <laughs> and, and you're on Twitter? Uh, I am on Twitter, yes, at JLRoot. Okay, please Perfect. do follow and um, yeah. you can keep everyone up to date there as well. Terrific. Well, I guess there's not much more to say. No. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Yeah, thank uh, for, you. For coming thank on the you podcast. both. It's um, been a really, great chat. Really interesting way of getting back into a film I've seen a few times and thinking it through with different lenses. So, yeah, yeah. Really I think a really it. great way to do Star Wars without doing Star Wars in perhaps the yeah. traditional sense. I, d- I don't know. One of these days we better do Star Wars, just, but I'm just enjoying this way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, um, as, the other as ones we go first. It. Okay, right. Well, <laughs> like Rogue One, I better set up the next uh, installment with the admin. So, um, right, you can follow us at Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, and you can email us at that same address if you have any footnote suggestions. Did we mention anything that passed you by that you want us to clarify in 10 minutes? Uh, we will happily do that on a future episode. Research at gmail.com. This episode was produced and edited by Leon Waldo. Thank you very much to his ongoing help. Yeah. Uh, and you can visit the website, of course, if you want to read Jonathan's blog and anything else we've written on Star Wars, VFX, de-aging. Um, all that jazz. All that stuff, you know. You know what's on there. Have a look. Fancy-animation.org. But that's been us for another episode, and we will see you next time. Bye. <laughs>